Good evening, welcome, I'm Paul Peppis. I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center, and I wanna welcome you to this, the third in the OHC's uh, lecture series, our named lecture series for uh, this academic year on the theme of the common good. Common good, right behind me. Um, our speakers on this theme have been providing a variety of perspectives on the common good, how we understand it, uh, how it works, or ought to work in our lives and the lives around us. Before I introduce our speaker for tonight, I have a couple of brief announcements, as I always do. Um, as you saw as you came in, we have an information table in the foyer where you can find out about upcoming OHC-sponsored and co-sponsored events and sign up for our mailing list. Our speaker has generously agreed to do a Q&A and a book signing after the lecture. Um, we're live streaming the lecture, so. Uh, because of that, uh, when we do the Q&A, we'll ask you to come to the mics at the front of each of the aisles, um, speak directly into the microphone so everyone here and everyone elsewhere can hear you. Uh, to maximize opportunities uh, to ask questions, please um, make sure to ask a question and to keep your questions as concise as possible. I also need to give my customary thanks. First, thanks as always to our collaborators in EMU Event Services and the Center for Media and Educational Technologies for their logistical and technical support. Thanks also to the OHC's incomparable staff, our Associate Director, Gina Turner, our Program Coordinator, Melissa Gustafson, our Communications Coordinator, Peg Gerhardt, and our Student Assistant, Greta Blankenship. And this will be Greta's last public event with us since she's going to graduate from the University of Oregon. So thank you for everything, Greta. Uh, <laughs> I also want to thank our newest collaborator, Jeremy Nissel of J. Michael's Books, who has generously agreed to host our book signing which is a service that is no longer provided by what was once called the UO Bookstore, but they don't sell trade books there anymore. And last but not least, thanks to our generous donors and supporters, and any of you who are not yet donors or supporters of the OHC, we'd urge you to consider joining that uh, uh, august group and uh, supporting uh, our, our public programs and our research programs, and if you're interested in that, you can pick up a donation envelope at the information table on your way out. So at this point, it gives me great pleasure uh, now to introduce our speaker for the evening, journalist Elisa Al Roth. She will deliver this year's Lorwin Lecture on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. The Lorwin Lectureship was created in, 19, uh, sorry, in 2009 with funding from the estate of Val and Madge Lorwin. The goal of the Lorwin Lectureship is to bring leading scholars and experts to Oregon to promote greater appreciation for the importance of civil rights. Journalist Elisa Roth is uniquely suited to help promote a greater appreciation of the importance of civil rights in two particular intertwined contexts, the criminal, the criminal justice system and the mental health system. She's a prolific, engaged, and activist journalist interested in those society tends to overlook. Her work has uh, been broadcast on Marketplace, NPR, and The World. Her stories have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and Gastronomica, among other publications. Most important, she is the author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. 
Given Elisa Roth's particular areas of interest and expertise, there's little doubt that her Lorwyn lecture tonight, America's Hidden Mental Health Crisis, will help promote a greater appreciation of the importance not only of the civil rights of those who are incarcerated and suffering from mental illness, but also of the common good. Please join me in welcoming Elisa Roth. Thank you, Paul, for the lovely introduction, and thank you to the Oregon Humanity Center for having me here tonight. And thank you especially to Gina and Melissa and Peg and Greta for making this such a, a wonderful visit. We have a mental health crisis in America. This picture, as many of you will recognize, is from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the story that gave many of us our first understanding of mental health and mental illness in America and the problems with mental health and mental illness in America. Um, there's Jack Nicholson looking very young in this movie picture. Um, I'm showing you this picture not just because Ken Kesey, who of course wrote the book, um, is a U of O graduate, but of course, go Ducks. Um, this story takes place at a hospital here in Oregon, and the movie was filmed at the state hospital just up the road in Salem. But I'm showing it to you tonight because it's really one of the most iconic images in what most of us think of as this crisis. But now I want to show you some pictures of places that are certainly less iconic, um, that I'm willing to bet are a lot less familiar to you, but are actually a lot more representative of what the crisis looks like today. This is the Los Angeles County Jail in downtown LA. This is Rikers Island, the jail in New York City. If you've ever flown in or out of LaGuardia Airport, you may have seen a, gotten a glimpse of it out your window. Um, this is the Cook County Jail in Chicago. These are three of the biggest jails in our country, and they're also three of the largest providers of mental health care in our country. Now, I visited all three of these jails, um, which I understand is a dubious honor, um, but I've also been to jails all over the country, so Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rochester, New York, Hampton Roads, Virginia. And wherever I go, the story is effectively the same, that the local jail is the largest provider of mental health care. Here's a cartoon that I like that illustrates this phenomenon. You can see that we've just pasted a mental health facility facade on the jail. So what does this look like in real life? Well, by some counts, as many as half the people in our jails and prisons have a mental illness. Here in Lane County, the sheriff recently said that 60% of the people in the jail, so more than half, have a mental illness. And I actually heard today that some people say it's even higher. And to put that into perspective, in the outside world, so outside of the criminal justice system, only about 20% of adults have a mental illness. The numbers are more alarming when you get down into the, to the specifics. So in absolute numbers, many fewer women than men are incarcerated, but about three quarters of them, the, the incarcerated women, have a mental illness. So as I said, we have a crisis here in America, but it's invisible to most of us. And so what I wanna do tonight is to tell you about this crisis, where we are today, how we got here, and then how we might get out of it. 
Now, the jails that I've been talking about are representative of this crisis. But the fact that they've become the de facto mental health providers is just one piece of it. So I want to give you a couple of facts that will give you a broader sense of how this crisis really pervades the entire system. One in four fatal police shootings in this country involves a person with mental illness. A person with mental illness has a one in two chance of getting arrested over the course of his lifetime. People with mental illness are less likely to make bail once they're arrested, and even those that manage to make bail, it takes them longer to get out of jail than it takes other people. They're less likely to make parole, and when they do make parole, they're more likely to have trouble staying on it and staying out of jail again. So this is really connected to the whole system. Now, what's confusing about this is that the word crisis usually implies something new and relatively sudden, so the financial crisis or a political crisis. But this crisis isn't new. Um, and what I'm going to show you tonight is that we've been going through it really since the beginning of our history. And not only that, we really haven't gotten very far in dealing with it in the last 250 or so years. Now, we can look back at our history, and you can see that this crisis has it's been going on the entire time, but it really comes to a peak at a couple of key moments that happen about every 100 years. So the 1750s, the 1850s, the 1950s, and then after that it really accelerated, but I'll get to that in a minute. This, of course, is Benjamin Franklin. He saw this first moment of crisis before we were even a country. It was the 1750s. He was living in Philadelphia, which in those days was the largest and fastest growing city in the colonies. And what he and other people started to realize was that as the colony was getting bigger, there were more and more people with mental illness who were living there. And if they didn't have family to take care of them, the only place for them to go was the house of correction. In other words, to jail. And what he said was that house was by no means fitted for such purposes. So about a decade later, a little bit after that, the governor of Virginia came to effectively the same conclusion. And he pushed for the country's first hospital that would just serve people with mental illness, so the first psychiatric hospital, because what this governor said is that I am, as it were, compelled to the daily commission of an illegal act by confining without my authority a poor lunatic who, if set at liberty, would be mischievous to society. In other words, he's saying he had to lock people with mental illness up because if he didn't do it, they would cause trouble. And this mentality is something that we still use today when we think about people with mental illness. Now, I want to break from this history lesson for a minute here and tell you a story about a man I met in Virginia. He happens to live in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is where this first hospital opened. Um, his name is Brian Sanderson. He's a lovely, funny man. Here's a picture of him with his, his son a couple of years ago. He's the one with the, the goatee. Um, Brian was a firefighter in Williamsburg. And he was living a very regular life. He had a wife, he had a kid, a couple of stepchildren, the two-car garage, the Disney vacations, the whole, the whole story. Um, and at a certain point, Brian developed bipolar disorder. 
He had a couple of stretches of severe depression, a few suicide attempts. And then, as often happens with bipolar disorder, the mania kicked in. And in his case, it was so severe that he started to hear voices. So at a certain point, the voice told him that he needed to go from his home in Virginia down to Texas to open a homeless shelter. Now, Brian had no experience opening homeless shelters, no experience with social services, but he was convinced that he needed to do this. So he got in the car, he started driving from Virginia, hadn't slept in, in days, and he, he gets to South Carolina, so two states south. And the voice said, hey, it's time to stop. He stopped at a hotel in South Carolina, stayed for a couple of days. And after a couple of days there, the voice told him it was time to go. So he packed up his stuff, took it out in the hallway, and the minute he got, he got out in the hallway, he shut the door. And the minute he got out, he realized he'd forgotten something in the room. So he put the key card back into the lock and tried to open the door, and it wouldn't work. Now, anybody who's stayed in a hotel recently has probably had this experience. It's very frustrating, very aggravating. Um, but instead of going downstairs and asking the front desk for help the way we might do, um, Brian took off all his clothes, he threw all his stuff into the elevator, and he started riding the elevator up and down over and over again. After a while, another another hotel guest got onto the elevator with him, um, and you can probably imagine what happened next. Um, the sheriffs came and arrested him. He was charged with indecent exposure, among other things, in South Carolina. That's punishable by up to three years in jail. Um, so in that context, Brian was actually lucky because he only spent the next six months in jail. He was getting effectively no treatment for his disease. So he's still hearing the voice. He's absolutely terrified. And at this point, he's also, he's not just hearing the voice, but he's seeing things. So it's a two-story building, and he believed that there was a third story in this building and that his son, who was about 12 at the time, was there. He was also convinced that the officers who were taking care of him were threatening him, that they were going to go after his mother and his son. Um, he ended up in solitary confinement for a while because his behavior made him or his, his illness made him act in a way that the officers found either irritating or dangerous. Um, now, remember what Ben Franklin told us, that jail is no place for a person with mental illness, but it didn't matter. Brian stayed. Um, he was finally let go after six months. He went back to Virginia, and with the help of doctors and a lot of support from his mother, he started to feel better. And he, he pulled his life back together. He had a handyman business, and, and he was living quite well. Um, but after a certain point, as often happens with mental illness, he decided that, that he was feeling better and he wasn't going to take his medicine anymore. It took a few months, but the mania kicked in again. The voices came back. And by this point, Brian was separated from his wife. He was living in an apartment in Williamsburg. And he became absolutely convinced that his neighbor downstairs was a terrorist. And Brian thought that he needed to save the city from this threat. So one day, when the neighbor was out, he broke into the apartment, and he found a stick of butter, which he believed was the, really a plastic explosive. And then in the yard, he found a tub of, of garden fertilizer, 
but he was sure that it was a fertilizer bomb or the makings of a fertilizer bomb. And so he called the police. Now, luckily for Brian at this point, the officer who responded to his call knew him. Back from his firefighter days, the first responders would hang out and they knew each other. And so this officer figured out what was going on and convinced Brian that he needed to go to the hospital um, just to get checked out. So, so far so good. This is what we would hope. Somebody has a crisis. If the officer shows up, they take him to the hospital. But as he was sitting in the hospital, he had, there was an intake process where a young woman, a, psych, a psychiatric technician, was interviewing him, getting his history and so on. And all of a sudden, that voice told him that she wasn't a psychiatric technician. She was a demon. So to protect himself, Brian stood up, he punched her, and he ran out of the room. Now, I don't want to underestimate how awful or terrifying that was for the, the technician, but Brian didn't know what he was doing. But the police didn't care, didn't understand, and this time they took him to jail. So I'm going to warn you that this next part of the story gets really quite awful. So Brian was in jail for a couple of days. And again, he didn't know where he was or what was going on. But at a certain point, the voice came out and told him that he was a sinner and that he needed to remove his eyeballs to repent. Now, Brian is a very religious man. And there are a lot of references in the Bible to blinding oneself in penance for bad behavior. So lying in his cell, Brian reached up and he blinded himself. Now that's bad enough, but to me the kicker to this story is what happened afterwards. Brian was sent to the hospital, and they did their best to fix up his eyes, stop the bleeding, and so on. And then the psychiatrist came to see him. And what I found in the psychiatrist's notes years later was this. I do not see any reason he cannot go back to the jail with psychiatric follow-up there, and of course under close observation once he's medically cleared. I tried to find this doctor because I really wanted to understand, I still want to understand what he was thinking. Why would he send this man back to jail and not keep him in the hospital or send him to the psychiatric hospital? The doctor never returned my phone calls. Um, before I get back to history, I'll give a quick postscript on Brian because the story actually ends reasonably well. Um, he was sent back to jail briefly. He was made to stay on the same unit where he had blinded himself. Um, but he was eventually let go. The state eventually dropped the assault charges and whatever else they had charged him with. Um, and nowadays, Brian is living back in Williamsburg by himself. He does occasional trainings with law enforcement agencies nearby in the region um, about how best to deal with people with mental illness. And he's still hoping that someday he might get his sight back. So now I want to come back to colonial America because I want to point out a couple of places besides our use of jail as a place for people with mental illness, um, a couple of places of things that started in colonial times that we still see in some form today. Um, 
the first person who was hired to run that first psychiatric hospital in Williamsburg, had, back in the 1760s this was, before he took the job, he had spent the previous five years running the Williamsburg jail. And we see that overlap in, in employees today. So in 2014, it was a clinical psychologist who was given the job of running the Cook County Jail in Chicago, that picture I showed you earlier. Um, the man who just became the head of prisons in the state of Minnesota holds an undergraduate degree in social work and has really taken that education with him into his jobs, first as police chief and now as, as head of corrections. And those are just two examples. Another thing that we still see is this role of law enforcement in mental health care. So you saw how it played out in good ways and in bad for Brian Sanderson. Um, but this really goes back to Colonial Virginia, where it was up to the sheriffs to bring patients to the hospital. They were paid five pounds of tobacco for every mile they had to travel. And if the person they were transporting was so unruly that the sheriff needed backup, an additional officer or two, they actually got paid more. Nowadays, as some of you may know, if you call 911 because somebody is suicidal or somebody is having a, a mental health crisis of any sort, it's quite likely that it's a police officer who will respond, not an EMT, not a health technician, not a clinician. Now imagine if you called 911 because somebody was having a heart attack and it was the cops who showed up. Um, Finally, there's always been a sort of cycling of, of people among jail, hospital, community. So when the, the first psychiatric hospital got shut down after the Revolutionary War, um, because it had run out of money, and I will add here that, that it's also worth pointing out that, that money and mental health care have always been, been connected. Um, the patients who were still in the hospital when it was shut down were released back into the community, and we know that at least one of them ended up back in the Williamsburg jail. Even in those days, though, the jails didn't want to take people with mental illness. But if there was no place else for them to go, as I've said, that's where they landed. And several states actually ended up passing laws that said that jails couldn't turn these people away. And again, this is something that I hear over and over again from sheriffs and wardens and corrections officers. We're not equipped to handle this. We don't want this job, but we don't have any other choice. So I told you this crisis seems to come to a head every 100 years ago, every 100 years or so, excuse me. And by the mid-1800s, the situation had reached another crisis point. One of the people who discovered it, who first recognized it, was this woman, Dorothea Dix. She was a teacher in Massachusetts. And one day in the 1840s, she went to a jail to teach a religious class. And she was absolutely horrified by what she found. There were people with mental illness being held alongside the criminals in the jail. And those people were either being terribly neglected or treated with utter brutality. She later said the people with mental illness were being kept in cages, closets, cellars, stalls, pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. 
Now this is a cell. It happens to be in the LA County Jail, in case you're wondering. Um, but it looks like any number of jail and prison cells that I've seen. And as you can see, it is, for all intents and purposes, a cage, much like what Dix described. So that um, stainless steel piece that you're seeing on the wall is the bed. It's a very narrow twin bed, so you can see that the cell is maybe twice as wide as a, as a twin bed. Um, this is the, that's the window on the back wall, um, such as it is. And there are many cells that don't even have that much of a window. Certainly, you can't see out the window if you're inside that cell. Here's a man who would live in that cell. Again, this is the LA County Jail. And as you can see, his arm is chained to the bench that he's sitting on, which is how all the prisoners on this special mental health unit where he is are made to sit when they're out of their cells. That's true if they're having group therapy, that's true if they're watching a movie, and that's true if they're talking to a psychiatrist or a social worker, which, as you can imagine, doesn't do a lot for building rapport between the clinicians and the patients. So here we are again. We're still doing what Dorothea Dix called us out for more than 150 years ago. Now, Dix was so upset by what she found in Massachusetts that she started to visit jails all around the country and, as I did, found much the same awful conditions wherever she went. And she came to more or less the same conclusion as Benjamin Franklin had, that people with mental illness don't belong in jail. Jails and houses of correction cannot be so managed as to render them suitable places of confinement for people with mental illness, and who never having violated the law should not be ranked with felons or confined within the same walls as them. And she said, jails and overseers of houses of correction do not usually possess those peculiar qualifications required in those to whom should be entrusted the care of lunatics, which is, of course, the historic word. Um, so as she's saying, people who were running the jails then weren't the right people to be taking care of people with mental illness. And that's what we see today, the people on the front lines of mental health care in the jails and prisons are corrections officers. They're effectively law enforcement officers. And yet, in many ways, they are acting as psychiatric care providers, as mental health workers. Dix started to travel around. Having seen these jails, she started traveling to the different state legislatures. And she demanded that people with mental illness should be taken out of the jails and instead put into a hospital. And she managed to get a real system of public hospitals put into place. They weren't perfect, but in a lot of cases, they at least tried to be asylums in the true sense of the word. Here's a picture of, of one. Um, they, they started out, as you can see in this picture, as a kind of a utopian ideal, where people would be taken care of, they had a community, um, many of them were very much like small towns, so patients could work on the farms or in the laundries or in the kitchens. Um, one writer did remark rather dryly that it was interesting how having patients work in occupational therapy jobs meant that the hospitals didn't need to hire as much outside labor. Um, but there were chapels and libraries, there were even cemeteries. And these institutions kept growing so that by the middle of the 20th century, there were about half a million people across the country living in these kinds of places. 
and pretty soon they were bursting at the seams. It won't come as a surprise to hear that as they got bigger and the populations grew, these institutions got further and further away from that original ideal. And the therapeutic benefits of these hospitals decreased largely because there simply weren't enough doctors and other caretakers um, to, to provide that care. So what they ended up with were effectively warehouses full of people with mental illness. By the 1930s and 1940s, the next crisis was really starting because the conditions in these asylums had deteriorated completely. In 1946, a journalist, Albert Maisel, wrote an absolutely scathing article for Life magazine. In it, he concluded that the vast majority of our state mental institutions are dreary, dilapidated excuses for hospitals, costly monuments to the state's betrayal of the duty they have assumed for their most helpless wards. So it's ironic that 100 years after Dix proposed this very idealistic alternative to the jails, the hospitals themselves had become the problem. Maisel's article was accompanied by shocking photos like this one. And people were so horrified by his report and similar ones like it um, that they decided it was time to, to shut down the hospitals. Um, there was sort of a perfect storm that really encouraged the, the states to close down to effectively close down the entire asylum system. So there were these terrible reports about the conditions in the hospitals. Around this time, Medicaid was created, and it included real incentives for states to save money by moving the mental health care out of these hospitals and into the community. And there were new drugs, namely Thorazine, that made it seem like medication might be the answer to everybody's mental health care needs. Now, we all know today that none of those promises panned out the way they were supposed to. But I think it's interesting to remember and important to remember that in each of these moments of crisis, we tried to do the right thing. So whether it was the colonies of Pennsylvania and Virginia funding hospitals to care for people with mental illness, or Dorothea Dix insisting that people get moved out of the jails and into the asylums, or people insisting that the hospitals be shut down because they weren't safe and, and useful anymore. But we've always, we've tried to do the right thing. It just hasn't worked. So this brings us back to the picture we started with. Because as I said before, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is really emblematic of that period. So it's around this time when the asylums were so bad that people were released into the community. And it's this time that many people believe is the root of the crisis that we have today. Now, in that version of the story, it goes something like this. The states promised that they would replace the hospitals with outpatient care in the community. Um, but because these treatment centers, as I said, never materialized, People with mental illness were left without any place to get care. And because their diseases weren't being treated, they ended up committing crimes and landed in jail and then in prison. There are even graphs that appear to illustrate this story. So you can see the top line 
in light blue shows the population of the um, psychiatric hospitals declining to effectively zero today. Um, and at the same time, you can see the dark blue line, the bottom line of the population of prisons going up and rising quite dramatically. And this explanation for the crisis is one that my fellow journalists and politicians and policymakers love to tell. That's partly because it's a very tidy story. There's a cause, the closing of the asylums. There's an effect, people ending up in jail and prison. And even better, it looks like there's a very easy way to fix this crisis. If we provide proper mental health care to our people, then people with mental illness won't end up in jail and prison anymore. The only problem is it's not true. Now, it's true that the number of people in the institutions has dropped while the, people, the number of people in prison has gone up. But we all know that correlation is not causation. And we can look at a number of things that, that bust this, this story. So for starters, the people who were living in the asylums were overwhelmingly elderly, female, and white. And as most of us know by now, the majority of people in our jails and prisons are young, male, and not white. We look at the diagnoses of people in the asylums. It was largely schizophrenia. The diagnoses that we see in the criminal justice system today are much closer to what we see in the outside world. So by best estimates, closing the asylums accounted for maybe 5% of the rise in incarceration over the last 40 or so years. So this brings us to the latest iteration of the crisis and the other root, I believe, of the crisis, which is mass incarceration. There are more than 2 million people in jail and prison in America today. This shows the number of people per 100,000 that we lock up. You can see without even looking at the numbers, just at the graph, that we lock up more people by orders of magnitude than any other country in the world. Now, there are a number of factors that have driven up our incarceration rates. The war on drugs means that we're arresting and keeping large numbers of people locked up for their connection to drugs, whether it's using them, buying them, selling them, having them. Another factor is broken windows policing, which is the idea that if we crack down on small crimes, it'll deter people from committing larger crimes. Um, but a side effect of this broken windows policing is that it's made it very easy to lock people up for all kinds of things, whether it's disorderly conduct or sleeping on the sidewalk. And the third piece is that long sentences have meant that once people are locked in prison, they tend to stay there for a very long time. So when we look at these factors, it suddenly becomes clear, it suddenly makes sense why we can look at, at the Lane County Jail and realize that more than half the people there have a mental illness, because these factors targeting crime in this way um, really disproportionately affects people with mental illness. So the war on drugs is a very easy example to understand. When we look at the population of people, incarcerated people who have mental illness, about 80% of them also have a substance use disorder. So 
if we're arresting people for their proximity to drugs, whatever that looks like, it makes sense that you'll be picking up a lot of people with mental illness. By the same token, if you've walked around any city in America recently, you know that there is a very high incidence of mental illness among people who are homeless. So it makes sense that if we're picking people up for the so-called quality of life crimes, we're gonna catch a lot of people with mental illness. And finally, people with mental illness, as I said earlier, have a very hard time getting parole and, and other um, things that would let them out of prison sooner. Um, and so it makes sense that people with mental illness are staying locked up longer. So here we are, more than 250 years after Benjamin Franklin started trying to figure out how we should be taking care of people with mental illness. And in a lot of ways, things have obviously changed. So slavery has been abolished, women can vote, we use electricity, we have the internet, I can go on. And even with mental illness, we understand so much more than we did before about how it works and how it can and should be treated. But as we've seen, so much of what we do is really exactly how it was before. We still don't know who should take care of people with mental illness, where they should live, and far too many people with mental illness are confined in absolutely terrible conditions rather than addressing their true needs. We're just locking them up. People often ask me if there's anything hopeful about this very depressing story. And there are a couple of hopeful things that I do here. One of them is that everybody agrees that we have a problem whether it's doctors or lawyers, and lawyers, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, judges, sheriffs, activists, the people themselves, all agree that what we're doing today is wrong. The other thing that I find hopeful is that there's really a broad political consensus that we need criminal justice reform, and we need it now. And because of those two factors, the consensus that we need to change and the understanding that we need criminal justice reform, we're starting to see some positive movement. Um, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Um, we know that, that interactions with police and people with mental illness can be, can be difficult, um, whether that means that they're ending up getting arrested or worse, getting shot. Um, and many law enforcement agencies have begun training their officers to do a better job of dealing with people with mental illness, whether that means calming them down or taking them to the hospital. Um, in San Antonio, Texas, there's a, a program the city put together that is a sort of a one-stop shop for people with mental illness um, who end up getting picked up by the police, and this one-stop shop help stabilize people and then direct them to community mental health care, housing, other needs. And it's a program that's being copied really all over the country. In Miami, Florida, there's a diversion program that has been so successful at getting people charged with low-level crimes out of the criminal justice system, they were actually able to close a wing of the Miami-Dade County Jail. This program is also being replicated and both Miami and San Antonio have been continuing to work to improve their programs. 
The other thing that we're seeing is that jails and prisons all over the country are working to improve conditions for people with mental illness, whether they're getting rid of, of solitary confinement for people with mental illness or building special units that do a better job of treating people. Um, many jails and prisons, I learned even here in Oregon, have a separate wing or even a separate building that's designated for people with mental illness, so they're separated from the chaos that is jails and prisons. And these are all promising fixes. And the other thing is that the current situation is so bad that almost anything would be better than what we're already doing. What worries me, though, is that, what, that we're failing to look at the bigger picture. It's great that we have police officers who are better trained to deal or respond to a mental health crisis. But it completely ignores the question of why police are the ones responding to these crises in the first place. It's important that we give people in jail and prison better mental health care than they're getting. But why is it jail or prison that they're getting that better care? And do we then run the risk of judges or attorneys or even the people themselves saying, I better go to jail, that's the only place I'm going to get any mental health care? But of course, people who are incarcerated are the only group of Americans who have a constitutional right to health care. So as we're sitting here in this very promising moment where we all agree that we need to change, we also need to make sure that we do it right so that the next fix doesn't turn into the next crisis as we've seen over and over again throughout our history. It's this, this fix, this right fix, is going to require more than just coming up with new solutions. What we really need to do is change the very way that we as a society think about mental illness. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for the historical perspective. That was a lot of new pieces for me. I was curious if you could share any context that you know about history, uh, the context prior to colonization, either with Native American communities or European English norms that colonists brought with them. To answer the second part first, um, much of what Benjamin Franklin and other people of that period were hoping to do, they were looking back at what was happening in England, and there were hospitals to care for people with mental illness. Um, and so there was really an understanding that we have this, this way of handling it, and this is what we should be doing in the colonies. Um, as far as the Native communities, I'm learning that there's a very different understanding in Native culture of what mental health looks like and what mental health care looks like. And I think what we've come around to or come back to is the idea that we don't need to impose our colonial, for lack of a better word, care on these cultures, but rather find ways to allow them to embrace and use their own, own ways of dealing with the crisis. 
Um, thank you for your talk. And uh, um, there are two, two issues you have raised, but I have not answered. I think you did a very uh, good uh, uh, review about where the current problem, but about solution, I think there are, um, I'm wondering, there are two issues you raised, uh, if you have any idea about uh, the solutions, or maybe can go further to, in, to do the investigation. Uh, one issue is about uh, why people have mental illnesses. And uh, well, let's say majority. And uh, currently in our uh, talk, it sounds like it's still like uh, the, I mean, bi biochemical perspective. It's more like uh, somehow it's, uh, it's the problem can be treated by the, some medication, or at least that's the current solution, or some uh, politicians believe. And uh, the question is, uh, I mean, I work as a, uh, uh, mental health counselor at, in DOC, uh, Washington State, for, for some time. And I have a first hand every day to listen to those stories. But certainly one issue is, uh, I, I hope you can do more uh, investigation. How many of them say PTSD or whatever schizophrenia uh, uh, say patients or inmates, they actually they were victim of child abuse or an, any type of family violence. So that's, I mean, if, you, if uh, one issue you focus on is a drug solution, but uh, how often, I mean, how many, if you really look, look at the issue as the root of the issue, how many of them actually come from dysfunctional society, dysfunctional family environment? Okay, that's one of the questions. I hope you can do further investigation, okay? Another issue about uh, the policy issue. Currently, of course, the many, say, CEO and police officer are forced to become a, a therapist almost like uh, they, because the, the, the politicians do not pay attention to the mental health issues. They think that the security is a major issue, and, uh, but they don't uh, actually spend more money, or at least uh, so society in general did not pay attention to the issue. So how to, I mean, how to address those issues in the future? Okay, thank you. I think that unfortunately we as a society are always very happy to hand out money in the name of public safety and not in the name of healthcare. And I think that there's a real lack of understanding that they may be related. Um, and I think it's a real issue that the frontline psychiatric workers in our jails and prisons are in fact law enforcement officers, but this dual loyalty is a problem that really pervades every job in the criminal justice system. And so I've talked to a number of doctors and psychiatrists who say that they feel torn. They don't know, on the one hand, they, their, their mandate, their professional mandate is to help their patients. At the same time, they are, as they always say, guests in the house, meaning that if they don't follow the rules of the corrections officers or the warden, they may find themselves kicked out or that their patients don't show up for appointments. And it's a very difficult balancing act that all the people who are involved with this have to deal with. Um, to address your trauma question, we know that particularly among women, there are very high rates of trauma and histories of abuse. Um, some of the more progressive jails and prisons are starting to acknowledge that this is an issue. So at Rikers Island, for example, they now consider PTSD among the, the diagnosable mental illnesses. Um, but I think it's something that we absolutely need to be thinking more about, not just inside the criminal justice system, but also in the mental health care that we provide outside of the, the system. Thanks for your questions.
Thank you. That leads very naturally to my question, and that is related to your graph, mm -hmm. which shows that we have a very highly overdeveloped prison industrial complex. This is true. So it becomes the default uh, overseer. And I wondered if you could give a little bit more of an angle to our underdeveloped healthcare and specifically mental health care system. Because in my view, I see that as a great failure and that the jails have simply moved into a vacuum. There's no question. I mean, I think by putting people with mental illness into jail, we get them out of sight and out of sight, out of mind. Um, mental health care has always been underfunded. It continues to be an issue even if we've passed, as we've passed laws that say that there needs to be parity between the coverage that we provide for mental health care and, and regular physical health care. And we know that there's not enough physical health care even in this country. Um, I think we absolutely spend far too much money and effort and attention on this public safety question and not nearly enough on the on the well-being. And what that means is that law enforcement and criminal justice often ends up being the, the default social service provider. When I mean, you talk to police officers about the reasons they get called out, and it's everything from a mental health crisis to a domestic violence call to uh, my neighbors irritating me, um, it's really putting unfair pressure on that, on that uh, sector, I think. Yes, I didn't want to turn this into a seminar, but I think at the root of our problems with healthcare in general and uh, mental health care specifically is the notion that we look at it as a sort of private privilege rather than a social responsibility or as a human right, I mean, I think it's, yes. it's mind-boggling that the only group of Americans who has a constitutional right to health care are the people who are locked up. Thank yeah? you. Yeah, thank you. Hello. Um, my apologies for doing this, but I, I take a bit of an issue with the way that you described your historical overview. In 1843, you were describing Dorothea Dix investigate, I believe it was a woman's um, prison of some sort. It was exclusively women within it. Um, you state that this is representative of mental health, mental, mentally ill people being confined in prisons, partially due, in large effect due, to their mental illness as some, for, some sort of segregation from the general population, some sort of confinement. Then you reach 100 years later and you're describing how the mass closure of American mental health institutions is not correlated to the rise in prison population because the people who are going into mental institutions are not the same people who are being arrested for crime. And I think this, this is a fundamentally contradictory fact. This suggests very strongly that the people who were being confined in earlier times for mental illness were of a dramatically different sort of mentally ill or a dramatically different sort of population than who are being confined in prisons today. And therefore, that when we're looking at any kind of prisons taking over mental health issues, we cannot really look to the past as an example. And I think it's also fair to point out that asylums, especially when they were first founded, were fundamentally not intended as hospitals. The word hospital, the word clinic was eliminated. This was not a cure. 
This was an intentional, explicit, lifetime segregation. Whereas many mental hospitals today are, will use any word that implies that it is a temporary stay because they do not want to in any way suggest that someone needs explicit oversight and uh, what do you call it, custodial care for the rest of their lives. Well, it's absolutely true that we have seen sort of a shift in how we define mental illness. I mean, certainly back in the day, we would lock people up on the grounds of mental illness because they were not performing their wifely duties, however you define that, or they were dating the wrong person. Um, and so we have changed that. I think that what's still true today is that, that we haven't figured out um, the best way to, to provide care for people who need it. And pardon me, but to further that point, when we closed the mental hospitals, we got rid of a large portion of mental health patients who are the most difficult to treat, who are the most difficult to cure. What we now define as mental illness, as you have just said, and as I would agree, has dramatically changed. When we say 60% of people in a jail are mentally ill, we do not mean what we would have said 100 years ago. For that reason, by the kind of progressive reforms taking, taking place in jails today, are we not simply creating a sort of new, very selective, mental hospital which attempts to cure people who are more curable, people who are more treatable, and allow seriously mentally ill individuals to remain homeless simply because they are therefore invisible by being on the street? Are we not effectively creating a self-selecting system which is only going to, as the mental hospital jail becomes more progressive, become more aggressive, more discriminatory, and as you just stated, create an effective constitutional right for care for people who are just odious enough to get attention, but just curable enough to be monitored and custodially maintained, effectively I mean, perfecting the asylum system that we claim to abolish. Certainly we're seeing that many of the people in our jails and prisons are among the most difficult to treat, in part because we've neglected their care for so long. So in many cases, mental health care, like physical health care, if you, if you let it run on without addressing it, gets worse. Um, it's, it's a problem, not how do you look at it? Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bring this down a little bit, sorry. I have two questions, if that's all right. Um, the first is I was just wondering if you could elaborate more on what you mean by changing the way we think about mental illness, and the second, if you could go into a little bit about why it's been always been so underfunded. As far as changing the way we think about mental illness, I think we can go back to the governor of Virginia who said that he needed to put these people in jail because they would be mischievous, I think was his word. And I think that we still have a sense that people with mental illness are dangerous. And you hear it from you know, people in the community who call the police because somebody's standing in the street talking to himself, but you also hear it from people who I might argue should know better. So you hear judges over and over say, well, what I don't want to do is, is open the newspaper tomorrow and see the guy that I let out on the front page because he murdered somebody. And so I think we have this sense that there's a danger, that there's something volatile, uncontrollable, and that the only way to handle that is as a public safety issue, lock them up for our good. Um, and so I think we need to start thinking about that. What do we mean? What, what does dangerous mean? What's a crime? Is it really a crime to sleep on the street if you don't have any place else to sleep? I don't think so. Um, and I've forgotten what your second question was. I apologize. Why it's been so underfunded. Always. 
I think it's partly related to this idea that people with mental illness are, are dangerous, unwanted. Um, I think for a long time, and, and even today, there's, um, in many cases, the, the community of people with mental illness or the community of people with family members with mental illness, there's a, a shame and embarrassment. And so I know that back in the day, you would talk about cancer. Um, or even somebody who had AIDS, and nowadays in my lifetime, I see people marching for AIDS and for cancer and all these things. There's some of that in the mental health community, but I don't think it's gotten the same attention and the same people don't have the same willingness to talk about it, and I think that's, that's part of it. Hi, thanks for your time. And I just wanted to ask, so from your historical background, you explained how closely intertwined mental health is with the criminal justice system. And then at the end of your speech, you gave solutions and offered examples of how criminal justice systems have programs involved in their systems for mentally ill that might be beneficial. So what are you suggesting? Are you suggesting that these two will always be entangled, mentally ill and the prison system? And are you suggesting they should always be entangled? And what does it look like when they're not entangled? So in an ideal world, they would be absolutely separate. I would be in favor of getting rid of a large portion of the criminal justice system and certainly separating it from mental health care. But I'm pragmatic enough to realize that this is not happening anytime soon, if ever. And so as long as we have more than half the people in the Lane County Jail, for example, um, in need of mental health care, I think that we need to make sure that we're providing the best mental health care possible. Um, the other part of it, which I'm now seeing the more progressive and thoughtful um, clinicians who are involved in the criminal justice system say, is that when you have somebody in jail or prison, you have literally a captive audience of a bunch of people who otherwise might not have access to healthcare for a whole range of reasons. Um, and so why not make use of this time and help them not just with their mental health care, but with their physical health care as well, or even something as simple and seemingly obvious as getting them enrolled in Medicaid so that as soon as they come out, they're covered by health care. Hi. So I'm just, um, I, I know a bit about what's happening here in Oregon, so I wanted to ask you maybe some Oregon-specific questions. I may have um, to ask you the Oregon-specific questions. <laughs> um, well, our state hospital here is um, quite full. It's uh, always at capacity, um, and it's also very expensive to um, give people care there. And so a lot of the care isn't, um, doesn't involve one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions, things like that. Um, and there's this, also this large intersection with homelessness and mental illness that's going on here in Lane County. Um, so you mentioned that Medicare um, had um, incentivized the states to move to a community-based mental health care system, um, but that didn't really happen. And I've been hearing from a lot of people who we've been interviewing and the research we've been doing um, that that can be more effective. Um, community-based care. Yes, community-based care. Um, is that what you found in your research? Um, what does that look like? And could that be a possible solution to some of the things we're seeing here, especially 
with homelessness and mental illness? For starters, I will say that Oregon is unfortunately not alone. I don't think there's a state in this country that has enough mental health care, and particularly at the state level. So I don't know if you were following Colorado for a short time this winter. They stopped accepting any patients who weren't coming in through the criminal justice system because they just didn't have space. Um, there's no question that community mental health care, when it's provided, can be extremely effective. Um, part of the problem is that we have such a shortage of mental health care that people's diseases, as I said earlier, are reaching a crisis point before they're ever getting any care. And by that point, they're already so sick that maybe they need inpatient care, even if it's for a short time, they need that care. But if we had a system of community-based mental health care, I think it could be very effective. We're starting to see some interesting things, but again, not nearly in the quantity that we need. Um, but for example, providing mental health care in schools, um, which makes many things easier so you can remove some of the stigma. It removes the responsibility in the best sense of the word of the parents. You know, if somebody's working three jobs and barely getting dinner on the table, how are you gonna take that child to an appointment? So if it's in school, it's there. Um, but there's no question that we just don't have enough of it. I visited some community mental health care centers um, in Oklahoma in particular, it stuck out because the situation was just so bad that really unless you were actively psychotic or actively suicidal, you weren't even gonna see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, and often the wait would be weeks if not months because they just didn't have the capacity. We do have very limited capacity here as well. Um, and again, when people are houseless, that just kind of creates, that feeds the cycling. Well, you think about it a lot in terms of, say, if somebody gets out of jail, in a best case scenario, they might get two weeks worth of the medication that they've been on, or two, you know, if they come out of prison, same thing. Um, but if somebody doesn't have a place to live and you're worried about where you're gonna sleep, and at least here, most of the time, I think it's not so cold that you'd freeze to death, but if you're in Minnesota and it's minus 20, you're really gonna worry about where you're sleeping, you're worried about where that next meal is coming from. Suddenly that, that need to, to look for mental health care, make sure that you've got your prescription filled or that you've signed up for Medicaid so that you can get the prescription filled, really starts falling way down the list, as in any reasonable way it should, but it, it ends up creating a different set of problems. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Henry Elder. I'm a psychiatrist. I worked at the Lane County Jail uh, for a couple of years. Uh, I'm no longer working there. But I, as I worked there, I was constantly swimming against a current of underfunding and, under, uh, and, and somewhat of a, of a culture uh, against the, the uh, mentally ill at the, at, at the, and uh, some traps between the culture of the, uh, of the psychiatric hospital and the psychiatric provision in the jail. And I think, you know, that, that some of the psychiatrists uh, at the hospital seemed to understand that we were providing adequate psychiatric care in the, in the jail. I don't know why they would get that idea, uh, because we were, our hands were tied and, and, and we, couldn't, we couldn't provide that kind of care. 
We couldn't get people to the state hospital in a timely fashion so they could get care there. We couldn't get them into the community when, they were, when that was available because of the, of, of the constraints that the community, this community, Eugene, Lane County uh, provides. We need to do something about that here, folks, in Lane County. One of the things that I've found interesting is that we would like to separate those two populations so the people who are patients in the state hospital are not the same population in the way we'd like to look at it as, as the patients in the, the jail because those are criminals and these are sick people. And what they don't realize is that very often we're seeing the same people going back and forth. And so it's yet another reason to make use of the time that, that people are, are locked up because they're gonna end up in the hospital and need care there, so we might as well start the care someplace else. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, so the speaker who is, uh, uh, the last speaker in this series spoke about the uh, negative effects of nature deficit on prison inmates. Uh, and I can imagine that's just one of many ways which the actual physical and emotional conditions of prisons can, can exasperate uh, pre-existing mental health care conditions. So I was curious, um, in a system where these two are still entangled, how, might, what might be a way to navigate that? Yeah. I mean, I've talked to many psychiatrists working in jails and prisons who say that, yes, we have a, a small sector of people who have a very serious mental illness, say schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, who really need medication and, and other treatment. And that for the vast majority of the other people with mental illness in the jails and prisons, we could do wonders just by making sure that they got regular sleep, regular exercise, good meals, some time outside. Um, it feeds into this problem of what are we doing to people in jail and prison? Why are we putting them there? The punishment, I mean, in the case of people in jail, they haven't even been convicted. The case of people in prison, the, the punishment is that they've been locked up. So why is it that we need to exacerbate that punishment, whether it's by putting somebody in solitary confinement or just keeping them out of the sunshine. I can tell you that having gone into many jails and prisons, even going in for a couple of hours is exhausting and depressing and, and really upsetting, and I can only imagine what it's like to be there for, for days on end. Hi. Um, thank you for kind of questioning and, and looking into that narrative of the, the mental health hospitals um, being the uh, exact cause for what we're seeing. Um, in, in terms of, I, th I think there's a, a good consensus and agreement that people with uh, mental illness, uh, one of the most beneficial things is social support and a sense of community and that, that type of, of um, that's an important factor in, in them getting better and, and, and living um, a, a good quality of life. On the other hand, I think there's increasing understanding of um, some of the, uh, I, I, and I wish there was a better word that I could come up with, but um, uh, contagious elements to, in particular, uh, suicides, um, um, children that grow up with uh, parents that have a mental illness um, in the house. Um, I think uh, your presentation reminded me a lot of um, uh, Foucault's deconstruction of uh, during his uh, 
History of Madness, and where he compares our treatment of, um, he, he wouldn't say exactly the mentally ill, but um, to uh, ways that we've dealt with in the past uh, issues like leprosy, and um, in Cuba in particular, they uh, dealt with uh, HIV and AIDS, which is the sanatorium, and, and bringing people out um, of the community. I'm, I'm wondering, one, do you, think, do you think that's a fair comparison as to how we uh, uh, treat the mentally ill and um, the issue of mental illness um, in the same sanatorium sense? And then also, how do you see that balance between, on, on one hand, social support being uh, uh, very important, and, and on the other hand, um, th there are some of the, those contagious elements. I mean, I think that we can make a lot of comparisons between the, the psychiatric institutions of yore and of the prisons um, in terms of putting people out of sight so that we don't have to think about them. Um, in terms of, of community and making sure that people have connections. We know that it's good not just for, for dealing with mental illness, it's good for dealing with everyday life for all of us. Um, it's also very important in the criminal justice system when we look at the people who do best when they've been let out of, of prison, they are the people who've maintained a connection to their family and to their community. Um, and I think that we have made it and continue to make it harder and harder for people to be connected, whether it's sending them hundreds of miles away to the prison or denying them visits and, and insisting on, on video calls so that you're not actually seeing or touching that person. And I think it has absolutely really negative effects. Uh, I, I just recently uh, witnessed a woman uh, having a heroin overdose and in the process of stopping breathing stopping and luckily we caught we made the call to 911 and we got that cleared out and then on the train traveling to California I uh, there's this lady uh, was drinking alcohol and actually you know doing meth and uh, she had to, she comes back and she's being wild and disruptive and then uh, she has a grand mal seizure <laughs> and that was really a great introduction to um, drugs and mental illness and whatnot but what I seem to notice, like in Eugene, we have a rampant homeless epidemic, and un, un, the housing is astronomically costly, and uh, there are people like St. Vincent de Paul, and they, they, they are trying to have a 1% tax, and the legislature is trying to pass legislation, and so there's some progress, but it's, I was really surprised, like when I went to Berkeley and San Francisco, I just didn't see as much homeless. I was, surprised that I see here and I'll just say is to go this white bird uh, cahoots this cahoots that rides around the police and picks up all these addicts and talks to people they're wonderful I've white heard bird. great things about cahoots white, I saw their white, van white, in a parking lot yesterday white bird, like sometimes these addicts just live there you know, in the inclement weather and just it's so important to have some help I first of all thank you so much for your presentation uh, my question is if you have any specific recommendations for organizations or ways that I could get involved in being a part of reform, either for the criminal justice system or mental health care. Um, I think that there are probably people in this room who know better the Eugene-specific suggestions than I would. I did learn today about the Inside Out program here at the U, which is amazing maybe it, i've done it yeah um 
And I think that any opportunity really to connect with the other populations are really helpful for both sides and potentially really life-changing for both sides. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time here. Um, I'm really glad that somebody else mentioned cahoots. I was actually going to come up and say that. Um, I'm sorry, that mentioned? Cahoots. Oh. Um, uh, as you probably know, they are an alternative crisis assistance to police and uh, even in some cases an ambulance uh, providing a free ride. And of course, uh, they help people who are in a crisis situation. Um, and I was wondering uh, to you, what would be the perfect blueprint, so to speak, of how we could reform the way that we uh, respond to people having these uh, crises, rather than sending police which, who are not equipped to deal with these? I mean, it sounds like CAHOOTS does a lot of what I would like to see happening everywhere. Um, with a physical health crisis, we send clinicians, if not doctors, and somebody who's been trained medically, and it makes perfect sense to me that if somebody's having a mental health crisis, it should be somebody who's trained to do that, to respond. And the question is, can we find the funding for it, and can we convince cities that this is the way to respond? I really appreciate your presence, the material you've shared with us. And mine is a specific comment question also in regard to some of the words I've heard used here, like, um, and you wrapping around, and I've been saying to myself much of the time tonight, what people in crises with mental health uh, dilemmas going on in their lives, what people who are in any kind of um, extinguished from normal flow of other people need, they need the same things you and I do. And so, for example, with CAHOOTS, and this is my question, right here in Eugene, I will say, to get help for someone through CAHOOTS, I have to call the police departments in Springfield or Eugene. That means when I'm going to do that on behalf of someone, I have to say to them, because they might not know, I need to call the police department, and that might mean they will be involved in what's going to happen with you. Is that okay with you? That we still have that linked is disgusting to me. I shouldn't have to go through those parameters trying to get immediate care for someone. How do we start establishing ourselves as equals, not us and them, all these kind of things? So that I'm at first not afraid of someone who's having a mental health issue, and just and then in society to quit building in right here in Eugene that system with the police involvement with cahoots. We do need to figure out ways to be able to engage without the police getting involved, and how to find help and get help that really addresses people's needs without getting law enforcement involved. But it's very entrenched and it's very difficult. Will you please join me in thanking Elisa Roth? <laughs>